There are two basic purposes a movie can serve. Some can fall under both categories, but for the sake of this discussion, we'll say that most fall under one category or the other. Some fall under the escapism category. That is, their purpose is to allow their viewers to escape the real world for two hours and disappear into the world of whatever narrative the film follows. Blimey, Harry, didn't you ever wonder where your mom and dad learned it all? Learned what? You're a wizard, Harry. That's no fair. <laughs> It's not fair! It's against the rules! Ah. No, ask us another one! No, 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 no. You said ask me a question. Well, that is my question. What have I got in my pocket? I got a bad feeling about this. Other films fall under the realism category. They serve to broaden our horizons, make us aware of the circumstances of others that we might not have understood on our own. Good. What's your job on the movie? Producer. Associate producer. What was the last movie you produced? Uh, high, high and Dry. Who paid for that? CFDC. What's your middle name? What's your middle name? What's your middle name? Leon? Shoot him. He's an American spy. I was born of heterosexual parents taught by heterosexual teachers in a fiercely heterosexual society. So why then am I homosexual? And no offense meant, but if it were true that children mimic their teachers, we'd have a hell of a lot more nuns running around. <laughs> It's important to point out here that neither category is better than the other. Both are vital not only to the success of the entertainment industry, but to the betterment of the people who watch them. When I was in high school, when I was sad or stressed or felt alone, the movie that comforted me of all movies in the world was Zoolander. I give you the Derek Zoolander sinner for kids who can't read good. What is this? A center for ants? What? How can we be expected to teach children to learn how to read if they can't even fit inside the building? In that case, escapism was the route to take. I didn't need to be reminded of injustices in the world. I needed to forget about them. 
Realism, on the other hand, isn't something we always actively seek out. It's a less obvious choice to go see a movie because you think it'll change your mind about this issue or that issue. Yes, I enjoyed Hidden Figures for its great storytelling, but also because it shed light on racial issues that I probably wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise. This Sunday is going to be one of the most, if not the most, politically charged Oscars in history. We've gotten a taste of that from other award shows this season. Winners have taken their time in the spotlight to speak on issues that they believe in. The main question here is, in this current political climate, particularly a political climate where there's a nominee boycotting the ceremony because of said climate, as well as issues within the entertainment industry itself, remember the trending hashtag last year was hashtag Oscars so white. Taking all of this into account, does Hollywood have an obligation to take a more formal stance than it already has? And if it does, what better way than with one of the most prestigious awards the industry has to offer? Fences, Moonlight, and Hidden Figures were three of the best examples of realism this year, and a win for any of them would give a nod to the serious struggles going on outside of Hollywood. On the other hand, a La La Land win would give triumph to the escapism, a reminder in this politically charged, tense climate that it's okay, and maybe even healthy, to duck out every once in a while and watch something that strays from current events purely for your own enjoyment. In years past, the Best Picture Award has represented what kind of year the movie industry had. This year, though, in a climate that's setting up either winner to be framed as a political statement, the name in that envelope means much more than that. That was Hannah Yashroff. For the rest of the episode, we'll be making a case for each of the two Best Picture frontrunners. First up is Taylor Stokes discussing the magic of La La Land. At the heart of any great musical, there's one song. It doesn't have to have words, just a rhythm or a melody that sticks with you. In Damien Chazelle's new musical, La La Land, it's this song, this simple song. It shows up early and then keeps showing up, providing a musical center to everything you feel about the love story and its two participants. And over the course of La La Land, you feel a lot. A great musical like this one has the potential to hit you in new places with unexpected power. When you first witness Mia flip Sebastian off on a crowded freeway, still strangers at this point, you don't expect to grow attached to the soon-to-be romance. But as you watch both of these characters stumble through individual troubles, crash into each other's lives, and eventually fall in love, you realize that without noticing it, Chazelle has fostered the emotional connection only present in a truly great musical. And it's been a while since we've seen a truly great musical, which is why La La Land is so special. It's a tribute to old Hollywood, a time when musicals attracted crowds and collected awards instead of being a cliched thing on Disney Channel. In the 50s and 60s, love stories like Mia's and Sebastian's weren't all that uncommon to see on screen. Life was a song, you came along, I've laid awake the whole night through, if I but dared. Despite the homage it pays, this musical is different than its older predecessors. Let's face it, 
Ryan Gosling isn't a wonderful singer. Emma Stone doesn't blow audiences away with her vocal prowess. They know it. We know it. Chazelle knows it. But in some ways, that only makes the story more real. For one, it draws attention to the real magic of the musical, the score. Justin Hurwitz shouldn't go unmentioned in anything related to La La Land, because as I said before, it was his composition of Mia and Sebastian's theme that provided the real center for Giselle's work. The composer's efforts are evident throughout the movie, especially during an ambitiously beautiful ending. So why should La La Land win Best Picture? In 2017, a story like this possesses a unique power that deserves to be recognized. Through this film, younger audiences get their first taste of an expertly crafted romance told through song. Meanwhile, older viewers are transported back to the days of musicals being at the forefront of the film world. Notice that for both young and old, we're talking about an experience. This movie, without a doubt, is an experience. Part of that has to do with the fact that it's built on escapism. This movie isn't meant to be revolutionary, but it's meant to take you away for a while, transporting you to a world far dreamier than our own. That was Taylor Stokes. Finally, here's Michael Arrigo on Moonlight. It takes about 32 minutes to get from the AMC Georgetown movie theaters to my apartment in College Park. I've taken the route several times, often as a return trip from a press screening. These are celebratory rides, because seeing a movie for the Dimeback, a free movie at that, is one of my favorite things to do. I like to make a few mental notes to use later for my review, and then I usually let one of my Spotify playlists soundtrack the rest of my ride home. But a few weeks ago, I took that 32-minute ride in complete silence. I had just seen Moonlight, the new film from director Barry Jenkins, and I had to spend that entire drive thinking about what exactly it was and why exactly I was feeling what I was feeling. Moonlight is that type of movie. It's not just a film that has the potential to win awards, it's a film that has the potential to stun you into silence. It makes it hard to find the right words. Adapted from the unproduced play in Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue by the MacArthur-winning playwright Terrell Alvin McCraney, Moonlight tells the story of one life in three parts. That life belongs to Chiron, who we first meet as a quiet kid living in the Liberty City neighborhood of Florida. The movie's director and writer, Jenkins, and McCraney actually both grew up in that neighborhood, blocks apart, but never knew each other. Their deep connections to this story are apparent in the quality of both the way it is written and shot. In part one, Chiron is called Little. It's a nickname given to him by Juan, a local drug dealer who runs into the boy and takes him for something to eat one day. Outside of the kind and outgoing Kevin who lives in the neighborhood, Juan is one of Chiron's only friends. In one scene, Juan must explain to Chiron why other kids bully him, why they chase him around sometimes, calling him a fag. Chiron doesn't know what that word means. Part two finds Chiron in high school. He is played beautifully by first-time actor Ashton Carter, just gangly and awkward, uncertain in his every move. One night, he and Kevin wind up on a beach alone together, smoking a J. It's a chance for Chiron to find some certainty, to find some comfort. They kiss as the waves break before them. Part 3 doesn't open with Chiron. 
it opens with black. That's what people call him now. He lives in Atlanta, and he's a tough, muscular figure. Played with absolute brilliance by the actor Trevante Rhodes, this adult Chiron is the perfect mix of hardened masculinity and internal vulnerability. In his eyes, you can see both younger versions of himself, both still uncertain and scared, both staring back at you. At one point, Chiron decides to return to Liberty City for reasons unknown. It's been almost a decade, and he's a different man now. He sees Kevin, now played by the actor Andre Holland. In their car ride together, there are silences. So Chiron. What you, you looking at me like that for? Come on, man. Come on. You just drove down here. Yeah. Like you was just, you was just on one. And you hit the highway. Yeah. It's this third act that seals Moonlight as a masterpiece. Tense, layered, and beautiful, it's stunning to watch. I had the opportunity to actually speak with both Holland and Rhodes in DC a few weeks ago about the film, and the way they spoke about these characters is evidence enough that this film is just different. Just a warning, this audio isn't perfect, but here's Holland on his first time reading the script and what he likes about Kevin. Yeah, when I first read it, I knew it was gonna be, I knew it was gonna be special. Because yeah. I read a lot of things, man, and, and most of it you read it, you read the first 20, 30 pages, and then you kind of fall asleep, and then you start reading a few more, and then it's like, come on, get to the point. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you, and, you, and I usually read with, like, a notebook beside me, and I'm, like, writing notes the whole time, like, okay, well, this scene doesn't work because of this, or I think, you know, it should say this instead. And by the end of it, I look at the notes that I've made, and I go, well, do I really want to have all of those discussions <laughs> to try to, like, fight for these things? Um, but in this case, I read the script, and I didn't have a single thing about it to say. I just thought this is exactly as it should be. Similarly, man, I feel like, you know, I'm a person in real life who, who tends to be very empathetic, you know, and very kind of kind of generous, I think, in a lot of ways. And and uh, a lot of times in, in relationships that I've been in and friendships, people have said, well, you know, you're too nice, you're too kind, you're too generous. And I, I, know I really hate that. I really hate that, like, mm -hmm. that, like, kindness and generosity and empathy have become, like, a negative thing somehow. But in Kevin, I find that it's his empathy and it's his kindness and his generosity that actually helps to draw this man out of himself. You know, that draws black into a more authentic place. If, if Kevin were not as open and vulnerable and, you know, asking questions and trying to create space for him to be himself and all of this, then, you know, maybe this person wouldn't get to receive the, the, the compassion that he gets at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. you know? So that's something that really, that really resonated with me. And here's Rhodes, describing how he got ready to play Chiron. In regards to preparation, I, at least externally, internally that's something else, but externally, I, I really just walked around LA in the skin, man. I walked around feeling as if I had a secret to hide from everyone, and feeling as if I connected to someone, they would be able to see through me. They would see the insecurities, they would see everything that I was hiding, they would see past the mask. Um, and then really just walking around with this you know, sense of disdain towards everyone, feeling as if I couldn't love myself, so therefore I couldn't project love onto anyone else, because Sharon was someone who was beautifully tormented. You know, he yeah. didn't love himself because he didn't have that love from his mother. So it was just really, you know, turning life around and embodying that, because I 
I love connecting with people. You know what I mean? Like I'm gonna look in your eye when I have a conversation with you because I feel like that's what's genuine is. You know what I mean? Yeah. And mm -hmm. having to not do that whenever I'm walking around LA was a really unique thing. And then you can sense people wondering like, what the fuck is wrong with this dude? <laughs> you, can, you can sense it, and you can sense people like I witness people like walk across the street because I, you know, at the time I was I was bigger or whatever than when we shot the film, so I could see that. And if I'm not this nice person, people are automatically gonna assume like, oh shit, I need a yeah. You know, so it was unique. It was a really unique experience walking around in that body and then really just kind of receiving the world and how the world was treating me while we're doing while I was doing these things was uh yeah, unique sensation and that really helped me kind of push into the film. You can find more about our interview on dbknews.com, but they were both just super nice and they spoke quite eloquently about the film. Just notice the way they describe their characters and how they feel. It's different. I mean, imagine Ben Affleck describing his character that way. You know, he's a guy who feels like if they connect to someone, they would be able to see right through him. But also, he just really, really wants to fight the crap out of Superman. In a movie industry littered with reboots and sequels and just trash, Moonlight is more than a breath of fresh air. As a film with an all-black cast that isn't about civil rights or slavery, that isn't carried by a Will Smith or a Denzel, that doesn't have a legendary auteur at the helm, Moonlight is a game-changer. The second time I saw this movie, it was a special screening at the new National Museum of African American History and Culture. And after they showed the film, there was a Q&A with some of the key people involved. At one point, they asked Terrell McCraney about writing in Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue. I wasn't recording the panel, but I quickly scribbled down what he said. He was talking about how, in his other plays, the inspiration often came from a situation he wanted to create, or a rhythmic way that someone spoke, that he wanted to imitate, or something like that. Something abstract. But this one was different. He said, This piece came to me in sights and smells. It was heat on my neck and bruises on my body. It was so personal and visceral. The trouble was finding a way to get it down to paper. Maybe visceral was the word I was looking for on my silent drive home. Moonlight is a more visceral film than any you will see this year, and most you have seen in years past. Yeah, I guess that sounds right. I'm still not sure, though. Special thanks this episode to Patrick Basler, Hannah Yasheroff, Taylor Stokes, and Jay Reed. To see all of our staff picks for this weekend's ceremony, or to listen to the previous seven episodes of The Dive, head online to dbknews.com.